Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. They think it's all over. It is now. It's good. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for man. Nineteen sixty, the first year of the swinging decade. In cinemas across the world, audiences would laugh along at the misfortunes of Jack Lemmon in The Apartment, cheer for Kirk Douglas in Spartacus, and ride into Mexico with the Magnificent Seven. They would also be watching from the very edges of their seats as the master of suspense himself unleashed a film that, as well as being terrifying and horrific, has also gone down as one of the truly great Hollywood motion pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the making of Psycho. I better get back to the office. These extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid. Why don't you call your boss and tell him you're taking the rest of the afternoon off? I guess I'll go put this money in the bank and go home and sleep it off. Slept here all night? Yes. As I said, I couldn't keep my eyes open. There are plenty of motels in this area. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Well, the uh, mattress is soft, and there's hangers in the closet, and stationary with Bates Motel printed on it, in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious. And the, uh, over there. The bathroom. Yeah. My mother, uh, what is the phrase? She isn't quite herself today. My hobby is stuffing things. You know, taxidermy. She's ill. She sounded strong. No, I mean ill. You understand? I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past 10 years. I'm fruity, huh? I'm staying right here. 
This is my room and no one will drag me out of it. Least of all, my big, bold son. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. Nobody would ever claim that Plainfield, Wisconsin was a small-town paradise. In the autumn of 1957, it was home to about 700 people. It was a carefree, quiet town full of hard-working men and women, positioned out on the bleak flatlands of that particular state. In fact, there was nothing really special about Plainfield, certainly nothing that would distinguish it from the dozens of other communities in Wisconsin. All of that would soon change, however, over the course of one bitterly cold weekend that would begin with a mysterious disappearance and develop into the most shocking of discoveries. Ed Gein, or Weird Old Eddie as he was known amongst the locals in Plainfield, was a 51-year-old bachelor who lived a solitary life on the family farm on the outskirts of town. Ed lived alone following the death of his mother and brother and would often do odd jobs here and there as a means of raising some much-needed extra cash. He remained alone in the enormous farmhouse, tormented by the ghost of his domineering mother, whose bedroom he kept locked and untouched exactly as it had been when she was alive. He had also sealed off the drawing room and five other rooms upstairs, choosing to live only in one downstairs room in the kitchen. On the 16th of November 1957, Bernice Warden, a lady well known amongst the locals as she ran the hardware store in town, suddenly disappeared. Her son, Frank, was the sheriff's deputy, and investigations led him to discovering that Gein had been in his mother's hardware store on the day of her disappearance. Frank Warden and the sheriff therefore decided to pay a visit to the old Gein farm, already infamous amongst the local children as a haunted house. On arrival, they soon discovered that the doors to the main house were locked with no apparent signs of life and so the officers decided to take a look inside the woodshed. It was pitch black inside as there was no electricity, and as they moved further and further into the building, there was a distinct sense that something was just not right. In the gloom, one of the lawmen felt something bump against his shoulder. He turned, shone his flashlight in that direction, and sure enough, there was Bernice Warden. She was hanging from the rafters, on a meat hook, upside down. Her head had been removed, and her body was slit open down the front. Her head and intestines were discovered in a box, and her heart was later found on a plate in the dining room. There were ten preserved skins from human heads, and another skin that had been taken from the upper torso of a woman was rolled up on the floor. There were belts made from various body parts, a chair upholstered in human skin. The crown of a skull had been used as a soup bowl. Lampshades were covered with tautly stretched flesh. A table propped up by human bones and a refrigerator full of human organs. The four posts on Gein's bed were topped with skulls and a human head hung on the wall alongside nine death masks, the skinned faces of women and decorative bracelets made out of human skin. The scattered remains of an estimated 15 bodies were found at the farmhouse when Gein was eventually arrested, but he couldn't remember how many murders he had actually committed. Gein would later confess to wearing a coat that he had flayed from the torso of a woman and using this and other human skin garments he would parade around the farmhouse and pretend to be his own mother. In 1957, Robert Block was already a published author. He had had some moderate success eight years earlier with the publication of his novel The Scarf. Living just 40 miles from Plainfield, the Gein case fascinated him. But details were thin on the ground, 
Local newspapers only reported the barest of details which only made him more determined to find out what had really happened. Essentially, what fascinated Block the most was not so much the gruesome nature of the entire incident, but the fact that in such a small community where usually everybody would know the business of everybody else, nobody had the slightest inkling of what was going on until that fateful day in November. And so, Block began to write what would eventually become the novel Psycho. The main character was to be a recluse with very few friends, and in order to select his victims, Block decided that he should be the owner of a motel. Block had taken a keen interest in Freudian theories, and putting together what he knew about the concepts behind the Oedipus fixation, along with how he envisioned the story to develop, the main character, by now named Norman Bates, would have, in Block's words, a thing about his mother. Not just any old mother, but a mother who was dead. A mother whose body had been preserved, and a mother whose voice would still torment Norman from beyond the grave. Cleverly, this voice would be included in the novel in such a way that it would ensure that the reader would be convinced that mother was still alive throughout the story. But perhaps the most celebrated aspect of the story would be the introduction of the heroine, Marion. She would be established in the novel, have her own set of problems that she had to overcome, and just as the reader would start to empathise with her character, she would be suddenly and brutally killed off about one-third into the story. The book was published in the summer of 1959, just two years after the gruesome events at the Geen farmhouse. An initial run of 10,000 copies sold well, and the novel itself received favourable reviews, although in some circles where conventional thriller novels only stretched as far as Agatha Christie or Mickey Spillane, the story of an alcoholic, horny transvestite was too much for their delicate susceptibilities. Nevertheless, the book sold well, and before all of this, advanced copies had been sent out tentatively to all the movie studios in an attempt to get the story onto the big screen. General consensus among the studios at the time was, although it was a very original story with a clever plot twist and a few scares up its sleeve, it would be impossible to film. Eventually, in April 1959, what is known as a blind bid of $7,500 was submitted to Robert Block's agent for the screenwrites to Psycho. After a brief period of negotiation, this was raised to $9,000. After publisher and agent percentages were taken off, Block was left with about $5,000 for the rights to the novel. His contract with his publisher decreed that he would receive no bonus or percentage of profits in the event of a sale to Hollywood. Devastated at first that he would receive such a small amount for what he believed to be his master work, Block soon recovered when he learnt that the rights to Psycho had been bought by no one less than the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock. In 1959, Alfred Hitchcock was one of the biggest names in Hollywood. With 46 feature films and three television series under his quite large belt, Hitch was one of the major players in town. If Hitchcock were to consider any project costing $3 million or less, Paramount Studios would agree to give him total control over the selection of the story, the casting, editing, publicity. In fact, just about anything and everything to do with the movie. That summer would see the release of North by Northwest, and as usual, following the completion of every movie he made, Hitchcock would be on the lookout for something different. He was never a fan of the whodunit genre, or stories involving the supernatural or science fiction, and so, when Psycho came to his attention, it was just what he wanted. Hitchcock read the novel over the course of a weekend and was instantly attracted to the possibilities that the story presented. Two appalling murders, one of which a beheading, the clever device that was transvestism and a hint of incest and necrophilia. Hitchcock, by his own admission, stated that he had what others had described as a fiendish sense of humour and it was that side of his personality that the story attached itself to. But Hitchcock also had a score to sell. 
Four years earlier, he had narrowly missed acquiring the rights to a French novel that would eventually be filmed as Le Diabolique by Henri-Georges Clouseau. The film was a great success, with Clouseau being hailed as the master of the suspense thriller, or the French Hitchcock. In June, Hitchcock met with the Paramount bosses and announced his intention to film Robert Block's novel. His recent run of box office success for the studio was considerable, having directed Rear Window to catch a fee from the man who knew too much. North by Northwest will be receiving its premiere for MGM in a month's time, and the buzz around the industry was that it was another masterpiece. But Paramount were wary of Hitchcock's intention to film something different, something that their own script readers had described as impossible. And of course, they couldn't forget the previous time that Hitch had tried something different for them, with The Trouble with Harry and Vertigo both being box office failures. In conclusion, Paramount were not happy at all. They didn't like the story, the title. In fact, it would be difficult to find anything within the proposal that would interest them. But Hitchcock wouldn't let go. He wanted to make this movie, and as Hitchcock became more resolute about the matter, the Paramount executives relented, but only to a certain degree. No Technicolor, no big stars, no real budget at all. That was fine with Hitchcock, if that's how they wanted to play, he'd show them. He would film the movie in black and white quickly and cheaply. He would use relatively unknown stars who would be far less expensive than, say, Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart. And anyhow, he couldn't ask Grace Kelly as she had now become the leading lady in her own fairy tale. The final genius part to the puzzle of how to achieve this on such a modest budget? Simple. Hitchcock suggested that he prepare the venture at Paramount and then bring in the company he used for his TV series to shoot the picture on the studio lot as well as editing and post-production. Paramount stood firm, they were not going to finance Psycho, and coincidentally every soundstage was already booked or occupied. Fine, thought Hitchcock, and he proposed a deal that was impossible for Paramount to refuse. Hitchcock would finance the movie personally. He would shoot it at Universal, if Paramount would agree to distribute it, and in exchange for 60% ownership of the negative, he would waive his director's fee of a quarter of a million dollars. Initially, a script was drafted by James Kavanagh, who had previously written three scripts for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show, one of which had won an Emmy. The script unfortunately didn't meet with Hitchcock's vision of how he wanted the movie to be, and so the director met with young scriptwriter Joe Stefano and discussed some of the issues surrounding the original source material and how to transfer it to the cinema screen. There were two major concerns for Hitchcock in the novel. One was that Block had written the character of Norman Bates as a middle-aged, balding, overweight drunk whose main pastime was that of a peeping Tom. The other was that Hitchcock didn't care much for the murder scene. It wasn't the setup or the location that bothered him, more the fact that there was this horrific death of someone that you just didn't know anything about. What Hitchcock was looking for was a chance to get to know the heroine, especially as there was going to be the shock of killing her off so early in the movie. With regard to Norman Bates, Hitch suggested to Stefano the idea of him being played by Anthony Perkins. Stefano loved the idea. He could see Perkins as a kind-hearted, almost helpless young man that the audience would feel sorry for. His tenderness and vulnerability would be a real hook for the cinema-going public. The chemistry between director and screenwriter seemed to work, and both began to bounce ideas off one another. At subsequent meetings, Hitch suggested that a big-name actress should play the role of Marion Crane. In this way, nobody would be expecting her to die. Initially, Hitch was looking for someone bigger than Janet Lee, but as he talked it through with Joe Stefano, the more the idea of her playing it seemed to appeal. After all, she was not known for this genre of movie. Hitchcock and Stefano met every day for five weeks to work on the story, what soon became apparent to the scriptwriter was that Hitch was not interested in characters or their motivation, that he would leave to his writers. What Hitch focused on would be the visual concept of the movie itself, how a shot would be set up and filmed, and in this way Hitch would articulate the story in terms of images. 
and so Stefano would set to work on characters and their backgrounds. He wanted to imagine an entire backstory for them. Hitch would also look at the minutest detail. He would say to Stefano to prepare for what the audience may be thinking at all times. He would look at the minutiae of every scene. A detective was hired as technical advisor. Stefano would make the acquaintance of a used car dealer in Santa Monica to ensure that the scene featuring the selling of Marion's car was written realistically, and he would become well-versed in the geography and landmarks of Route 99, as well as an expert on taxidermy, real estate and the Oedipus complex. But by far the longest discussion between Alfred Hitchcock and Joe Stefano would be on the subject of the murder scene. This would be Hitchcock's chance to eradicate a compassionate character, played by an actress of star quality and well-known to the public. And the greatest part of this section of the story, it would all take place one-third into the movie. In this way, the audience would be left reeling, for now nothing would be impossible. If the leading lady could be killed so soon in the picture, the audience would be hooked. Stefano would hand in his first draft screenplay on December the 19th, 1959. Hitchcock read through it and asked that one scene and one word be changed. As per Hitch's instructions, Stefano amended the scene with the motorcycle cop to make it more menacing, and as for the offending word, it was lurid. Hitch didn't like the use of the word in the first scene where Sam talks about writing lurid love letters. When Stefano questioned Hitch's reasons, he just said that he didn't like the word. Well, in that case, said Stefano, if that's the only reason it can stay. And it did. Work followed on the shooting script, and once it was all finished, Hitchcock and Stefano went out to lunch and toasted the project with champagne. Stefano recalled that Hitch was very sad at this point and said to him, The picture's over. Now I have to go and put it all on film. Alfred Hitchcock would rarely share his true feelings with others but Stefano recalled another time where he had asked the master for a private screening of Vertigo. Stefano would say years later that he was there watching this beautiful movie that very few people had seen and a lot of those that had didn't much care for it or would comment unfavourably. Stefano told Hitchcock that he thought it was the best thing he had ever done, a comment that nearly brought the great man to tears. Remarkable really now as the movie is considered by many to be his crowning glory. Hitchcock began to assemble his crew, made up chiefly of those that had worked with him on his TV series. One notable exception would be the inclusion of George Tomasini. Tomasini had worked with Hitch on To Catch a Thief and the Wrong Man, and it was due to his expertise that he was brought on board. That, and looking forward, Hitch knew that he would need his expert skills as an editor if he were to pull off his vision for the shower sequence. One other member of the crew that was not associated with the TV series was the composer. Bernard Herrmann had worked with Hitchcock several times since their first collaboration on The Man Who Knew Too Much. Another familiar face would be that of Saul Bass, the genius behind the legendary title sequences for North by Northwest and Vertigo. Bass was brought on as pictorial consultant, and as well as the titles and the storyboarding, Hitch would turn to him for ideas for most of the key scenes in the movie. The shower, the murder of the detective, the haunted house, and the discovery of the mother herself. And so, to the cast. The first of which the sign was Anthony Perkins, who would take on the role of Norman Bates. To give you some idea of the financial savings Hitchcock would be making, for North by Northwest, Cary Grant was paid $450,000 plus 10% of the gross over $8 million. Perkins was to be paid a mere $40,000. Not that he minded, he was going to be given the role of a lifetime working with a master of suspense himself. Contenders for the part of Marion Crane included Eva Marie Saint, Piper Laurie, Shirley Jones and Lana Turner. But Hitchcock knew what he was looking for and Janet Lee was signed for the sum of $25,000. Vera Miles had begun a five-year personal contract with Hitchcock in 1956 to star in three movies a year following an appearance in his TV series. But this was not to last too long at all. Hitchcock had been moulding Miles to replace Grace Kelly as his new leading lady, and just before she was due to star in Vertigo, Miles fell pregnant and was unable to commit to the role. 
Miles would return to the Hitchcock stable for Psycho as Lila Crane, the sister of Marion. Marion's lover, Sam Loomis, was described in the script as a good-looking, sensual man with warm, humorous eyes and a compelling smile. Contract player John Gavin was immediately suggested by Universal, and Hitchcock had to concede due to the restraints of the budget, despite considering Rod Taylor, Brian Keith, Jack Lord, Robert Lozier, and even Leslie Nielsen. And that was the four lead roles sorted. But in order to maintain the deception that Norman's mother is alive throughout the movie, Hitch cleverly sent out press releases announcing that Judith Anderson and Helen Hayes were in the running for the part. Supporting roles went to Frank Albertson as the lustful oil man Cassidy. John McIntyre and Maureen Tuttle would play the sheriff and his wife. Mort Mills, the intimidating highway patrolman, and Ted Knight as the deputy. Finally, on the suggestion of Joe Stefano, Martin Balsam was hired to play Detective Arbogast, and Dr. Richmond, the psychiatrist, would be played by Simon Oakland. Caroline, Marion's office co-worker, was played by none other than Hitchcock's own daughter, Patricia. For Alfred Hitchcock, the look and visual style of the movie was to be all-important. In order to create the mood he envisioned, he would need an expert in set design and art direction. His first two choices, Robert Boyle and Henry Bumstead, who had worked with him previously on North by Northwest and The Man Who Knew Too Much respectively, were both unavailable. But for half the price of these two talented production designers, Hitch secured the services of both Joseph Hurley and Robert Clatworthy. Clatworthy was certainly a talent worth employing, having worked previously on Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, and he would go on to be nominated for six Academy Awards. First job in the agenda was to design and build the Bates House and the Bates Motel itself. The house, very closely resembling something from the Adams family, or even more like Edward Hopper's house by the railroad, was erected within a few weeks, and interiors were designed on the tightest of budgets, adding to the authentic feel of a tired old motel. Hitchcock paid particular attention to Norman's parlour, wanting the stuffed birds to be just right. He wanted the bathroom to be gleaming, clinical almost, in order to create a blinding white brightness. The sets were built on Universal's Phantom stage, so named as it was originally built for Lon Chaney's version of Phantom of the Opera and housed a replica of the Paris Opera as well as the subterranean caverns and tunnels. It was said that Hitchcock took twisted pleasure in knowing that the staircase in the Bates house was built on the same spot where the chandelier came crashing down in the Phantom of the Opera. Particular attention was placed on choice of wardrobe, or at least certain parts of it. Janet Lee's blouses and dresses were bought off the rack in Beverly Hills, but when it came to her lingerie there was a great deal of deliberation. After all, in 1960, the sight of a bra and slip on screen was just not done. For Hitchcock, it wasn't the fact that Janet Lee was to be filmed in her underwear. It was what colour the underwear should be. Eventually, after a great deal of consideration, Hitchcock decided that Janet Lee should be wearing white for the opening and black after she'd stolen the money. It was an announcement of character. And in this way, Hitch cleverly and visually indicated the difference between good Marion and bad Marion. Mother's clothes had their own set of difficulties, for not only would there have to be costumes for a stunt woman and even a lady only four foot tall to give the impression of a dear little hunched over old lady, shoes would have to be found to fit Anthony Perkins' size 10 feet. And then of course, what would happen in the shower scene, where no clothing would be required at all? Shooting finally began on November the 11th, 1959. The first footage were photographic tests of Anthony Perkins. The daily production sheets don't specify exactly what these tests were, but it's believed that they were shots of Perkins dressed as mother, as it was the only unusual costume prerequisite of the entire picture. Two weeks later, location shooting in Fresno and Bakerfield took place to capture shots for Marion's long car journey. Hitchcock's grand plan to use the longest dolly shot ever attempted by a helicopter had to be put to bed. 
Hitchcock had wanted the camera to sweep over Phoenix before finally focusing in on the hotel window where John Gavin and Janet Lee would be waiting for their opening scene. But this was before helicopter shots were commonplace and the camera mounts were just not stable enough to capture a steady picture. But nevertheless, shooting continued on location with Marion's encounter with the traffic cop, her arrival at the motel and her first meeting with Norman on the porch during the rainstorm. The scenes at the car lot were quickly and efficiently taken care of and the whole production went very smoothly. This was of course mainly due to the exactness of the preparation that Hitch had insisted on prior to shooting. There was an aura about the man on set and he would ensure that a good half day's work was completed by lunchtime as well as everybody finishing up and going home on the dot of 5.30. One of the unusual methods of Hitchcock's work was he didn't like to stay behind in the evening to watch the dailies. The crew could do that if he wanted. He personally would watch the mid-afternoon or not even bother at all, placing his trust in the script supervisor and the editor. And so, filming began in the studio, with the opening scene featuring John Gavin and Janet Lee in the hotel room. A key scene, as it would say to the audience, that what you thought you knew about movies from the 50s, well, forget about that. It's a new decade. Things are just going to be that little bit different from now on. The scene introduces us to the voyeuristic theme that runs through the movie by presenting Marion and Sam. By means of a wide pan shot through the hotel window, we see the couple on the bed. Sam is naked from the waist up, Marion wearing a white bra and a half slip. Hitchcock wanted something more than just an upfront kissing scene and he instructed Janet Lee to inject a little passion, a little something into the sequence. After all, this was going to be the first time in a conventional Hollywood movie that cinema goers would be seeing such a coupling not only partially clothed, but horizontal at the same time. Over a 50-year period, Alfred Hitchcock made a total of 39 self-referential cameos in his movies. Recurring themes would be Hitch carrying a musical instrument, or using public transport in one form or another. And of course, a cameo in Psycho was not only to be expected, it had to be early enough in the film so that those in the audience could spot him and then turn their attention back to more important matters like the plot. For Psycho, Hitchcock couldn't resist the chance to appear on screen, if only briefly with his daughter Patricia, who was playing the part of Marion's work colleague. Hitchcock appears about seven minutes into the picture wearing a large cowboy hat and viewed discreetly through Marion's office window, loitering on the sidewalk as she returns from her lunchtime quickie with Sam Loomis. Technical challenges were always a source of great delight to Alfred Hitchcock, and so when it came to filming Marion's long car journey, Hitch didn't just want your standard back projection. The reason being that when it came to night driving scenes, back projection wasn't usually used anyway, as it would basically be a black background with the occasional headlights of vehicles behind. Hitchcock got together with his electricians and technical guys and devised a method where black velvet was draped behind the car. Lights were mounted on a three-foot wheel which was rotated and then pulled away from the car, thereby giving the illusion of headlights getting smaller in size and disappearing. As for Marion's inner voice speaking to her throughout the drive, Hitchcock himself would convey the lines to Janet Lee, who would react accordingly with a worried look or furrowed brow. Throughout filming, secrecy was paramount at the studio. There was to be no publicity of the shooting unless Hitchcock deemed it necessary, and even then he would play games with the press as they gathered for photo calls. Hitchcock would make sure that there was a director's chair on set with Mrs Bates written in plain view on the back. He would then take great delight in ensuring that every major cast member was photographed sitting in that particular chair, apart from Anthony Perkins. Psycho would prove to be a groundbreaking movie in quite an astonishing way. Until its release in 1960, remarkably no American movie had ever shown a toilet on screen. 
Psycho would do this as Janet Lee is seen dropping the torn up fragments of her financial calculations into the toilet bowl. And while we're at it, why not be the first movie to also feature a flushing toilet? One of the most famous scenes in movie history began shooting on stage 18A on December the 18th and according to the storyboards as laid out by Saul Bass would take a total of at least 78 camera setups. Shooting would take a week for what would appear on screen for just about 3 minutes or so. The set itself was approximately 12 foot square. Each of the shots used in the shower sequence were not difficult for Hitchcock to film. He knew how each of the shots was to look in the finished product. The difficult part was down to the cinematographer Jack Russell. He had to light each individual shot and move the camera accordingly. Sometimes shooting up, sometimes shooting down. Contrary to urban legends that sprung up over the years, the water was not freezing cold and Hitchcock was extremely concerned that Janet Lee should be as comfortable as possible during the seven shooting days it took to achieve the entire sequence. But also, it was not just Janet Lee that had to be kept comfortable. For certain shots, Hitchcock employed a nude model. His thinking being that someone who spent their time being naked professionally would be easier to deal with than an actress who didn't. The model was also used for technical reasons. Fearing the wrath of the censors, Hitchcock and Russell had to ensure that there'd be no sight of naked flesh through the shower curtain or the water spray, and so the model was used as a guide as to when and where to cut or the distance to position the camera to prevent embarrassment. The shot of the water coming out the shower head directly onto the camera was achieved thanks to the special effects department who designed the head in such a way that when the camera was tilted at a certain angle, the water would spray out and never touch the lens. In order to preserve Janet Lee's modesty, several different ideas were considered, including different fabrics and various types of body stocking. In the end, it was decided that the best material would be a flesh-coloured moleskin. Each different camera angle would highlight a different swipe, a different slash and a different stab. As Janet Lee would remark, each cut was a cut, punctuated by Bernard Herrmann's piercing soundtrack. And the knife itself? Well, in order to get each shot just right, it was wielded by the director himself. Famously, as the movie was in black and white, the blood didn't necessarily have to be red and so chocolate syrup proved to be a more than adequate alternative. And finally, in possibly the most demanding part of the scene for Janet Lee, she had to lie absolutely still, draped naked over the tub with her eyes wide open. Unable to blink or breathe, she had to remain motionless for what seemed an eternity at the most uncomfortablest of angles, with the water dripping from her hair teasing her into almost blinking at any point as the camera slowly pulled away. Over the years, rumours began to emerge that Saul Bass had directed the shower sequence and not Alfred Hitchcock. This has been vehemently denied by all those that were there that week, stating that the master himself directed every second, every inch of that scene. At Universal Studios there's a famous part of the backlot set known as Falls Lake. Originally built for Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1926, it has gone on to feature in the second Jurassic Park movie, Spielberg's War of the Worlds and Godzilla in 1998. It's now a major part of the Universal Studios tour, but in 1960 Alfred Hitchcock needed it for a very sinister reason. Hitchcock's vision for the car in the swamp was simply to have Anthony Perkins push the car down the bank have it start to sink and then stop. He wanted the opportunity for the audience to hold their breath once more as they waited in anticipation, wondering whether or not Norman's plan to dispose of all the evidence would backfire on him. In order to achieve this, the lake was drained and a large hydraulic lift was sunk into the bottom along with a ramp of tyres that would come up to the shore. The car was rigged in such a way that it would be pulled into the lake on a cable 
It would hit the tyres and carry onto the lift, which would then sink it and be stopped at the exact moment. A moment long enough for the audience to start to panic. But then the lift would be lowered again, sinking the car completely. It was a one-shot take, and to start all over again would mean retrieving all the equipment and cleaning up the car. But Hitchcock didn't need to worry. The shot went flawlessly. The day came to shoot the scene where Martin Balsam as Detective Arbogast goes into the Bates house and walks up the flight of stairs. It was scheduled to be a day's work, just stopping short of the point where Mother would come rushing out of the top of the staircase. On this particular day, Hitchcock called in sick, but confident in the abilities of his crew in his absence, he instructed them to film the scene using the storyboards that had already been meticulously laid out previously. The sketches showed Martin Balsam going up the stairs to his fate, and the crew followed the shots as planned, and included a close-up of the hand on the banister and a shot of his feet going up the stairs. When Hitchcock returned, saw the dailies, he said they'd done a good job, but he couldn't use any of the footage. When asked why, the director replied, What you've shot is a murderer going upstairs. Close-up of his hands on the rail, close-up of his feet. He's supposed to be a victim. This man is about to be murdered. It all has to be shot in a loose shot of him going up the stairs. A special shot was required to show Martin Balsam falling down the staircase after being stabbed by Mother. Hitchcock wanted to follow him all the way to the bottom. This type of shot was familiar to the director as it employed something similar when filming Saboteur, with Norman Lloyd falling off the Statue of Liberty. The crew constructed a rig in which Martin Balsam would sit. The crew would then control the motion of the rig and all Balsam had to do was sit there looking straight ahead but twist and turn his body. A process plate was shot going down the staircase on another rig and the two pieces of film were put together quite effectively. And so to the reveal, where we find the shocking truth about Mother and Norman Bates' double life. This again proved to be a difficult shot when Vera Miles would approach Mother who was seated in a chair. The camera was positioned in such a way that several operators had to wheel the camera at the same time that a prop man would be on his back out of shot, turning the chair that Mother was sitting in. Timing was all important in order to get this right and it took hours and hours of precise rehearsal in the evenings before the shot was successfully achieved. Part of this sequence also involved Hitch wanting Vera Miles to reach up, move her arm and hit the light bulb, which then had to swing back and forth. On top of all this, Hitchcock also wanted the light to flare in the camera lens. Now of course flares in lenses are commonplace when you don't want them, but in this case the gods were smiling down and the shot worked perfectly first time. Again, choreography would prove vital as John Gavin had to reach over Mother's shoulder, rip the dress open and at the same time the wig was supposed to come off. But again, the careful rehearsal proved to be everyone's best friend and the sight of Anthony Perkins in full drag as Mother was a very enjoyable and funny time for both cast and crew. Alfred Hitchcock was worried that the end of the movie with a psychiatrist's speech would prove to be a turn-off for the audience. He described it as a hat-grabber, as he was convinced that after such a shocking reveal in the previous scene, anything else would just not be sufficient. He was afraid that the cinema-goers would just grab their hat and leave the theatres. Joe Stefano, the screenwriter, reasoned with Hitchcock and said that we have just shown the audience something they have never seen before that at least deserves some sort of explanation. Stefano had a meeting with representatives from the production code as they had one objection above all others, the use of the word transvestite. In the minds of the code officers, they believed that the word was dirty 
and that Stefano was trying to put one over on them. Eventually, Stefano had to get a dictionary and prove to them that there was nothing sordid about the word at all, and it was just the correct word for describing exactly what Norman was. The production code sheepishly backed down. Finally, we see Norman wrapped in a blanket. Stefano's way of saying to the audience that this boy is seriously ill. The dialogue and Norman's reactions to the dialogue were his way of saying that he will never be Norman again. The penultimate scene in which Dr Richmond, played by Simon Oakland, discusses Norman's condition was included to ground the film in reality. Hitchcock believed that the concepts were so daring in the movie that the film board would not let the film be released without this scene. Even though there are cutaways to the other people in the room, actor Oakland performed the scene in one single take. The skull, overlaid on Norman's face at the end of the movie, didn't appear in all prints. Hitchcock left it off of some of them because he felt he might have gone too far with it. The voice of Mother was achieved by blending the voice of Perkins with multiple actresses, including Jeanette Nolan, who was married to the actor John McIntyre, who played Sheriff Al Chambers in the film. Bernard Herrmann's score was composed for an all-string orchestra. Originally, Hitchcock wanted to play out the shower scene without music, but when he viewed a cut of the scene with the music overlaid, Hitchcock admitted that he was wrong. Luigi Laraski was the representative from the Hayes office, and when he was shown the film for the first time, Hitchcock and some of his closest collaborators on the movie watched his reactions, for here was the man that would say what could stay in the picture and what would have to go. At the point of the shower scene, Laraski jumped out of his seat demanding that the film be stopped as he was convinced that he'd spotted a bare breast. Hitchcock ran the film again, saying to Laraski that it was just his dirty mind that thought he'd seen a breast. And on the second run-through, Laraski admitted he was wrong. But he added, But I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble with this picture. not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. We say no one, and we mean no one, not even the manager's brother, the President of the United States, or the Queen of England. God bless her. A movie whose plot and even cast was wrapped in such deep secrecy deserves a promotional campaign to match. Right from the outset, Hitchcock was concerned that anybody that came into the cinema late would wonder what had happened to Janet Lee. She would have been killed off, and they'd known nothing about it. Hitchcock took the bold and unprecedented step of declaring that anybody who turned up late would not be admitted. And with the backing of the publicity department at Paramount and the theatre owners themselves, it was a very successful move. Initially, there was a mixed critical response to the movie, with some critics describing it as boring or just a padded out version of one of his TV episodes with the odd shock or scare. But looking back, what Hitchcock had done was riled the critics, because as part of the secrecy of the publicity campaign, no pre-release screenings were set aside for them. They would have to queue up with the regular audiences and watch the movie at the time of release. At the following year's Oscar ceremony, despite being nominated in four categories, the movie would walk away empty-handed, with Hitch himself losing out to Billy Wilder for The Apartment. Janet Leigh, however, would win the Golden Globe as Best Supporting Actress that year. For more than 120 years now, the movies have managed to breathe life into our most vivid nightmares. Often, the terror is created from the unreal, from imagining the unimaginable, 
but it's more frightening when the demons actually exist. Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, and Norman Bates in Psycho. All of these characters had their origins in that same true story. The horrifying crimes of a single man, or more accurately a monster, and his name was Ed Gein. Gein's crimes were committed against those that were both alive and dead. The corrupt actions of a disturbed and deranged mind, they hacked through the surface of a tranquil age, exposing the darkness that lurked just below. His warped and twisted world became America's obsession. What is basically at heart the story of a boy and his mother became the model for nearly 70 years of horror and one of the greatest movies of all time. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell you the story of the country star who went to jail. Not because he committed a crime, but because he wanted to make a hit record. The man in black playing for the men in blue. See you next time as I bring you the story of Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 